Hello, welcome to the uh, podcast for the journal Addiction. I'm here with Susie Gage. Uh, my name's Rob Calder, and we're going to be talking you through the March issue of Addiction Journal. And so we'll start with uh, Susie, who's been reviewing the editorial, those kinds of those parts of the journal. Um, Susie, what have you uh, what have you found this month? Well, the editorial is by Cal Kettle, and it's titled Addressing Substance Misuse, a Missed Opportunity in Suicide Prevention. And it highlights that although we know that substance misuse is often or certainly sometimes involved in risk of suicide, actually policies that exist around suicide prevention miss an opportunity to address substance misuse intoxication as a major modifiable risk factor for suicide. So national suicide prevention policies acknowledge that substance misuse is a risk factor, but few include strategies around how to address it. Okay, that's really interesting. And I think, yeah, it ties into the um, I was talking to someone fairly recently about the suicide prevention and, and a lot of it seems to be, uh, well, we wait until they sober up and then they get discharged and, and it often doesn't address the kind of recurring factors that, that influence that. That sounds really interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely worth a read. Uh-huh. Okay, and then uh, there's the review. Yes, yes, I had a bit of a look at the review as well. So that's by Hickson et al. And it's looking at, it's a systematic review and meta-analysis of nicotine exposure during pregnancy. Ah. So comparing people who remain smoking to people who become abstinent using nicotine replacement therapy. And they found that pregnant women who use nicotine replacement therapy instead of smoking reduce their nicotine exposure, which you you might expect. But I think it's really important because there are, certainly in some places around the world a kind of a worry about encouraging pregnant women to you to, to maintain their nicotine use even if they're stopping smoking mm. so it's really good to see to see some kind of decent evidence that moving to nicotine replacement therapy not only stops all the other harmful things from smoking but also you it reduces your nicotine intake as well yeah and and i guess a bit like the addictiveness of of, of new opioids it's a difficult area to study you can't randomize pregnant women to absolutely untested yeah. drugs um so i think that's really fascinating okay that's fantastic so i've been looking at the research reports and there's there's lots of research as as you would expect from the journal addiction uh, there's three research reports about alcohol there's one about cannabis there's uh, three about opiates and uh, two about nicotine and one about addiction overall the first one related to alcohol is about the uh, it's about harm from other people's drinking. So this is looking at not the person who drinks, but people around them or, or people uh, where that harm happens, whether it happens to people that they know or people that they that they don't know. And uh, they concluded that it was mostly the people most at risk to harm from other people's drinking are drinkers themselves. Um, and this happened in, in 10 societies. And that's really... It's really interesting to study this in in lots of very different societies because you get an insight into the different kind of drinking cultures in those in those societies. So it's, mm. it's a fascinating paper worth looking at. And there's a commentary on that as well. Um, there's a Mendelian randomization, which made me want to learn what a Mendelian randomization uh, analysis is. Well, we talked about it in the last issue. So for people who want to who want to know a bit more about me- the methodology, I kind of had a little bit of a rant is the wrong word, but um, <laughs> discussion with myself <laughs> around it. So if you're interested in the in the methodology, I recommend going back and listening to February's mm. episode. Yeah, we should we should definitely do some some methods based podcasts. Yeah, um. yeah, bring it on. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so the the, the Mendelian. Uh, this was Peng and and, and colleagues. 
Um, they were looking at associations between alcohol, alcohol consumption and diabetes in a Chinese population. They found a stronger association for men than for women. Um, it's a really interesting uh, paper. Uh, again, still with alcohol, there's uh, some interaction variables, which I've been learning about in the last month as well, which is all very exciting. Um, and that's about the relationship between perceived peer drinking and personality profile. So it's about anxiety and peer pressure among young people and the kind of relationship between those two things uh, on drinking. And then there was another one, and this is really fascinating, which is looking using two separate methods to look at um, injuries related to alcohol. Um, so they were looking at a population study and emergency department data and, and picking apart the different results they got from those two methods. Um, and that's, that's really fascinating. So there's about three papers in this issue that look at different ways of reporting the same thing and use the different um, results to to pick apart some some interesting findings. So there's one by Stam and colleagues which looks at um, heroin-related deaths um, and how they're classified and how they're reported and the different ways you can then interpret those data. And then at the end, there's um, uh, Dagenhart and colleagues' paper about uh, diagnostic criteria for alcohol and cannabis use disorders. They compare ICD-11 with uh, DSM-5 and ICD-10. So they look at these different classifications for addiction. And a bit like the, the alcohol paper, they study them across different countries and so you're looking at these different diagnostic criteria and how they identify different people as experiencing addiction or experiencing harm from drinking and how those criteria make a difference in who's identified and who isn't and whether they're culturally relevant. But it also talks a lot about harm to others as part of that diagnostic criteria. Um, then we've got a cannabis paper um, which is which disentangles relationships between youth cannabis use and peer cannabis use and conduct problems and again there's this whole thing you know does cannabis cause people to have uh, conduct disorders and or do conduct disorders uh, cause people predict to predict likelihood of cannabis use yeah predict that's the word i was <laughs> struggling to to hit uh, yeah and they they find that it, it from that paper it looks like it's the other way it's that way around that you were saying so conduct disorder tends to predict cannabis use there's a paper on hepatitis C, very interestingly saying that the reductions in opiate use uh, means that fewer people are getting um, hep hepatitis C tests because um, people in treatment for opiate use disorders are, are well targeted for hepatitis C testing. So as one goes down, the other um, might need to be addressed. Uh, uh, nicotine dosing um, and there's there's a couple of papers here on kind of optimal dosing. So there's one... So there's one uh, study on uh, pro progressive nicotine dosing, seeing about how uh, uh, the maximum t uh, high tolerability for a, a high dose of nicotine patch. And there's a similar one that studies the implementation of buprenorphine among newly registered physicians. And these, again, they're looking at uh, kind of optimal dosing, the extent to which that can be delivered and the extent to which that is delivered. And I think that's really interesting because, because you get these treatments that are effective um, but the difference between an effective treatment that is given at the right dose and an effective treatment that isn't given at the right dose um, can change whether that treatment is is effective or not. Um, so I think that I mean they're fascinating papers. They're all fascinating papers, and uh, that's a slightly lengthy overview of the research reports. Great. Well, it sounds like there's lots of interesting stuff in this journal, in this issue, regardless of what substance you're interested in, regardless of what kind of methods you use, there's probably something for you. Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. So I also had a quick look at the Addictions Classics paper, this issue, okay. and it's by Kelly, and it's looking at E.M. Jelinek's uh, 
1950s book, The Disease Concept of Alcoholism. Wow. And um, I haven't read the book, but I'm quite tempted to now because the classics paper makes it sound pretty good. So um, (laughs) it's a really interesting discussion of this book, which, despite its title, seemed to highlight a growing shift away from thinking about uh, alcoholism as a linear progressive disorder, but towards something more heterogeneous, kind of placing it, and it places it within a broader kind of cultural and socioeconomic context. Mm-hmm. And I really loved the the kind of conclusion of the abstract. It's such a good sentence that I'm going to read it out. Fantastic. So Kelly wrote, the book remains a rich and informative treatise of the topic of alcohol problems that reveals a humbling and unsettling truth regarding the degree of progress we may think we've made in the 60 years since its publication. Lots to think about there. <laughs> a humbling and unsettling truth. Yeah. That's really wonderful. Basically saying people, like we think we're all modern with the way we think about alcohol problems now, but actually we haven't really come very far since the 1950s. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I think there's always it's always worth bearing that in mind, isn't it? That it's always tempting to think that we know so much, uh, so much more than we did, and that is true. I mean, it's the you know the inevitable yeah. progress of science, but at the same time, in fifty years in fifty years time, people will be quoting us on a podcast or, or whatever it is, and uh, beaming it straight into our brains. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it'll be providing some humbling and what was unsettling. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. I'm going to try and use that phrase today. Yeah. Oh, I feel humbled and on <laughs> Excellent. Well, I um, it's beautifully written, mm. uh, that, that article as well, hence why I wanted to read a quote out from it. That's fantastic. Um, there are a few letters as well about um, community health care as a tool for continuing medical education on opioid use disorder and comorbidities. And one entitled Dying Alone, the Sad Irrelevance of Naloxone in the Context of Solitary Opiate Use. So really, really packed and interesting issue uh, for March, I think. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. OK, um, is there anything? I mean, I think we've we've summarised March. Yeah, I think so. And just to highlight that hopefully there might be an interview or two to go along with this mm. with March. But as yet, they're unrecorded, so there probably won't be any in this podcast. But if you check out the SoundCloud page, you'll be able to find them. Yeah. Okay, so that's the podcast for the March issue of Addiction Journal, um, uh, nicely wrapped up. Uh, Thanks so much, Susie. Um, My name's Rob Corder, and um, we'll see you next month. See you in April. Cheers, bye.